to Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah 4. Verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, so that, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, this is important, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work in which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know the difference between their right or left hand as well as many animals? So that's the end of Jonah 1 through or ch- chapter 4. I was going to do that and I didn't. I grabbed this. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, a couple of you have asked, Tim, do you think you'll get done with Jonah today? (laughs) One person I said, I think so. That was last week. The person asked me this morning, I said, no, no. It won't happen because we're not even, we'll, we'll maybe get all but three verses, the last three verses we might not get today. We probably won't. How many of you have learned something through Jonah, though, in studying it in detail that was like, I didn't even look at it that way, didn't even see that, didn't. 
how many verses does that happen to us? We get so familiar with the story, we, we lose insights of what sometimes he's trying to say. So in Jonah, where we are this morning is, I will get there here. So the Lord appointed a plant. We talked about that last week a little bit. And basically we talked about how Jonah was a man of envy. He was angry because the people he, that were his enemies, the people that were wicked and nasty, God gave mercy to. And seemingly, Jonah is not getting, giving mercy, at least in his mind. At least, he, they're getting greater mercy than I am. God, I don't want them to be here. Have mercy on me and kill them. Right? Well, the plant here that is talked about, so the Lord, He appointed a plant, just like He appointed a storm, just like He appointed a sea creature, just like He appointed Jonah Himself, just like He appointed, and we will see this plant, and then He appointed a worm, and then He appointed a east wind. There's a lot of appointments going on. Why is that? Well, God is sovereign. And he does what he wills. We're going to read Romans chapter six that deals with or five that deals with this very thing, and I think it's very important. But to understand where we're at, we understand that this plant was appointed by God, and why was it appointed by God to give Jonah mercy? Does Jonah deserve mercy? Not at all. Did Nineveh deserve mercy? Oh, but God gave it to them. Do we deserve God's mercy? No, but He freely gave it to us. This plant is similar with what happens with Elijah when Elijah sat under a broom tree awaiting for a response from Yahweh. Basically, Jonah's doing the same thing because Jonah made a deal with God, right? Hey, Hey, just kill them all. I want to, you know, or take my life. One of the two. Just do it. One of the two, you do it. And I'm just going to sit up here in my little hut and, and see if that, what you're going to do. And does God do either of them? No. But God realizes the uh, horribleness of man's work to fix his problem by building a hut that God appoints a plant. Just like where Jonah goes and sits under this plant, it brings to mind Elijah sitting under the broom tree waiting for God to decide what Jonah was dictating to God. And that ain't going to happen. The difference in Jonah 4 between the broom tree and here is that plant, this plant here is a special creation. I would have loved to have seen that plant. If it's going to cover all of Jonah, so it's, he's hidden from the shade, I would, how many would love to see what kind of plant that was? Like overnight, it's there. This is a special plant created just by God. And it brings to mind not only the plant in Elijah, but brings to mind all the appointments that God did. 
Did he bring a storm out of the middle of nowhere? Did he create probably a sea creature? And now he's creating a plant. And, and every one of those, even though they were judgmental in some cases, they were merciful also. God does not want him to leave. He has a job for him to do. So, it also brings about the idea that, you know, trees and shrubbery were created at the beginning for what? If you look at chapter 2 of Genesis 8 and 9, it was to give us shelter and food. And here, God is bringing shelter out in the middle of Mosul, Iraq, for his wayward, sinful prophet. God is a merciful God, is he not? Why and what was the purpose for the plant? Well, the text tells us it provides shade, right? It reminds, the, reminds us of Jonah's ineptness to create the shade that is needed by constructing on his own terms. But here God now is actually providing the shade Jonah needs. And what does Jonah do? From what we can understand, Jonah leaves his building and goes over to the shade. So that tells you what kind of a job he did building the hut. Regardless, it provides shade. That's one thing. But there's a second purpose. By the way, God certainly is expressing how God's grace and mercy is greater than man's works. Amen. The second purpose is to deliver him from his misery. Is, is Jonah not only suffering from the heat and the sun, which the plant helps, but he's also suffering from the misery that is self-inflicted. And the text here has the idea of to deliver you. To deliver you from what ails you, what is besetting to you. That not only is the sun, so shade is important, but also your ideology, your discomfort is the text, that, the word the text used. Discomfort can mean evil. It can mean disaster or misery. It is multifaceted for sure. It refers, it has to refer to both his physical mi misery, but also his heart evil misery that he finds himself in. And this is a over and over again. Did, did Jonah find himself in an evil place on the ship? Did Jonah find himself heading to Sheol, that evil place? Then in his mind, he was thrown up at an evil place in Nineveh. And now, God is not going to destroy Nineveh, but give mercy, and in his mind, that's evil too. This word keeps coming up over and over, and he is so ticked off. What do you think you're doing, God? These people are horrible. And yet you grant them mercy, and now I'm sitting in destitute up here, 
And then he was given mercy too. By the way, Jonah is no better than Nineveh if the same hatred and disregard for human welfare resides in our own hearts. See, the repetition of this term evil that happens over and over again is, exposes once again the fact of Jonah's moral equivalence to Nineveh. Jonah is just as wicked as Nineveh. He has sinned against an almighty God. He refuses to repent, and we'll get there later. Today, Lord willing. The city has been characterized in the world at that time as evil from the outset of the book. Even God calls it evil. Amen. It was a wicked city. But reality is Jonah is no better than Nineveh. Because Nineveh, they literally ravaged people and drew people and poked their eyes out and watched have them watch their children be eviscerated. It was just disgusting what they did, and they were certainly evil. And Jonah hated that, and rightfully so. Because they had no regard for human welfare, or that all people are created in the image of God. Well, Jonah, if all people are created in the image of God, then so are the Ninevites. So even though they physically are nasty, wicked people, you, my friend, are also just as nasty. Just as sinful. But regardless, even though that's true, Jonah was given mercy again by God. Jonah rejoiced over the plant with great joy, the Bible says, the text says, this phrase is reminiscent, yet opposite of how Jonah felt after forgiveness God forgives of Nineveh at the beginning of chapter 4. This displeased with great displeasure. Do you see the, no, the, the similarity? So here, I was given mercy. Oh, thank you, God. They were given mercy. Oh, God, you're a jerk. It's, it's the exact same thing in opposite. This displeased God, the mercy that was given to Nineveh, with great displeasure, the text says. Divine mercy provoked two radically different reactions, not only in Jonah, but in us also. When extended to Jonah's enemies, divine mercy was displeasing. Let me ask you, if Hamas is brought to court in front of a judge of Netanyahu's choosing. And the judge stands in front of Hamas and says, you are free to go. How's that going to work? How happy is Israel going to be if that were to take place? You see, that's exactly what's going on here. And Jonah 
is extremely upset. God's divine mercy to your enemies, God, is extremely displeasing. But for him to be given mercy, he's overjoyed. Let me ask you, is, is God trying to teach Jonah something? Absolutely. And what I believe God is trying to teach Jonah, he never, as far as we know, there is no document telling us he did. He never learns it. Now, could he have? Sure. I don't know. But the text never tells us he learned it. So what happens next? So he's overjoyed because he was given mercy. So what does God do? I love God. I love God. And I love how God deals with this because he does it to us all the time. We don't recognize it, but in the text, look what he does. The next stage in God's object lesson is the appointment of a worm. Oh, goody. How many love worms? Really? Wow. I guess you're not grown up yet. <laughs> worms. God, it's, look at the Turk text. It says, God appointed. God is a sovereign God. If I may state a line of God's purposes realized in this, God blesses Israel and appointed Jonah. This is what's going on, and this is so awesome. Just follow with me if you would, please. God blesses Israel and appointed Jonah to prophesy the great historical expansion of Israel's land and prosperity. That's mercy that God showed on Israel. And God appointed Jonah to preach that message. But Israel sins and turns its back on God. Their sin. God appoints Jonah to preach to Nineveh. For Nineveh, that's mercy. Jonah sins and turns his back on God. That's sin. God appoints a storm to encourage Jonah to repent. That's judgment. But it's merciful judgment. Jonah refuses to repent and refuses to listen to God's encouragement of the storm. And what happens? He gets thrown overboard. Why? He is judged because of sin. God appoints a sea creature, a fish, to keep Jonah alive. Why? To preach to Nineveh. That is God giving Jonah mercy. Jonah finally relents. He does not repent. Chapter 2 never says a word about it. He relents and he obeys. That's obedience. God causes repentance in Nineveh. That's God's mercy. Jonah watches to see if God will change his mind and judge Nineveh from, from a Jonah-made hut that is not working so well. That's sin. God appoints a plant to give respite to the heat and mercy to Jonah's heart. That's mercy. 
Jonah is happy with the shade, but he's not happy about the repentance and mercy. That's sin. God appoints a worm. That's judgment. Jonah is unhappy. Over and over and over and over again, God is trying to teach him, repent. Repent. You're going away from God. Repent and go back to God. No. He gets thrown over. The storm comes. I'm still going to be obstinate. The sailors, the sailors repent and they throw Jonah over. Okay, okay, okay. Jonah gets on land. God says, go and preach that I'm going to overcome them. Oh, great. Yes, I will. He goes over. He, re he preaches. And what do they do? They repent. Jonah stomps off, goes up, builds his own hut because he deals with God, sinning, makes a deal with God in his mind. He's still not repenting. Jonah loves the mercy of the plant, but still not repenting. So God sends a worm. Why does he send a worm? He's not repenting. Jonah is not repenting. That is the problem. That is the whole point of the whole book, to be honest with you. Jonah, I don't care what you think you sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Repent. By the way, God wants all men everywhere to what? Repent. Repentance is a lifetime regiment for all of us. The plant symbolized God's mercy. The worm symbolized God's judgment. But God appointed a worm so that when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered, worm, that worm frequently serves as an image of divine judgment, a profound human despair. Isaiah 14. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Oh, goody. How many love that picture? Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 39. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. How many of you have ever, ever heard of candling a uh, fish fillet? Anybody know what that means? Nobody knows what that means. Ooh. How many of you have eaten fish out of Kutfutsu or Lake Winnie? Probably every one of you. I remember very clearly especially in Little Cutfoot, you catch a fish, you flay them, right? And then you candle them. Why do you candle them? Anybody know why you candle them? What does it mean to candle? You set it in front of a light and the light kind of pushes through it. And all of a sudden, I've done that, and you look up and it's like all these spots are in there and these white things. Do you know what those are? A parasitic worm. Oh, goody, yummy. 
they're in just about every single perch that you catch out there. And they're in some of the walleyes, and I've seen them in northerns. And I'm guessing they're in every fish, but I'm not an ichthyologist. You would have to ask Mr. Gaiman on that. The reality is, I don't even like eating fish out of that lake anymore. Sorry, I messed it all up for you, Mrs. Gaming. <laughs> the point, and by the way, there's plenty of other lakes like that, and probably worse. The point is, it just turns your tummy, does it not? And here's Jonah. Thank you, Lord. I've got a bad attitude. You know about it, but you give me the shade. Woo-hoo! No burn on my baldness. And God said, you still aren't getting it. You still aren't getting it. I sent the storm. I sent the fish. I sent going to Nineveh. I sent you to do these things, and yet you still will not repent. And here it's at the end. You've seen all that I've done for you. I've given you mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy. I've given you judgment to say, knock it off, and you won't. You will not repent. I'm dealing with a man right now, then I don't even know how to deal with him. His wife, all he wants to hear is, I love you, and he will not do it. He won't do it. Why? What is wrong with you? That's the same thing with Jonah. Repent, man. Can you get it? Repent. Turn from. Go away. And he refuses to do it. Talk about being German. Right? Bullheaded, just no way. Absolutely not. Jonah is, he, he's try, God's trying to teach him and he's just not listening. The term worm conjures thought of death and the grave. Or in our church today, Lake Winnie. Thus, the worm is an appropriate teaching tool for God's object lesson to teach Jonah divine mercy and divine judgment and above all, to teach him repentance. But what happens? God uses this object lesson of a worm to help him repent, to change his mind, to go a different direction. The result is his own despair. And he requests to die again. The day immediately following, and it's not a, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's like God is at war with Jonah because he uses military action here now. He sends a worm to attack. He sends an east wind to attack. You're not getting this. I'm going to make it worse now. And he does. The day immediately follows the worm attacks the plant and it withers away. And here's the deal. This isn't like our sci-fi movies and this honking huge worm comes and in one gulp kills the plant. Gone. It's not like that. It's like, oh, there's a worm on the plant. Oh, there goes one leaf. Oh, there goes another leaf. How many are following this? 
there's a hole in my leaf. Stop it! <laughs> I don't want this heat here. Stop it! You're taking away the mercy you've given me. Yes, I'm judging you, Jonah. You're not getting it. Wake up! Repent! Jonah, it's almost as if God is saying, Jonah, here is shade to bring you comfort from the sun, an opportunity to change your attitude. You enjoy, your, you enjoy my mercy of shade like Nineveh has enjoyed my mercy of forgiveness. I'll give you a day to check your attitude at the door as the worm is eating your mercy. Does that make sense? It's exactly what God's doing. Obviously, Jonah did not. So God sends in the military troop of the worm and decimates the mercy once shown the day before. For God to use the military word attack may, be very, may very possibly be a foreshadowing of what God is going to do to Israel. Jonah, repent of your attitude towards God's decision of mercy and the repentance of Nineveh. And by the way, at this moment in time, Israel is in, of the writing, Israel is in dire need of repentance. But the only thing Jonah knows is, hey, you told me this was all great and wonderful and we're going to explode and bust at the seams, had a great money, our economy is going to be awesome and our land will be precious and all this. That's what you told me. That's what I prophesied. That's what's going on. And God now is saying, you guys are wrong. You need to repent and you're not repenting. Jonah, you can say you did this, that, and the other thing, but unless you repent, you're going to be judged. He's saying the same thing both to Israel and to Jonah. In essence, I, God, have given you mercy despite your sin. I, God, gave Nineveh mercy despite their sin. I am a God, I give, I am God, I give mercy to whom I give mercy and judgment to whom I give judgment. Amen. What shall we say then? That's the verse, right? There is no justice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will give mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And Jonah didn't get it because Jonah's up there working his tail off to to get his own mercy of a hut, and that miserably fails. So God gives him the mercy of a plant, and he still doesn't repent. So then God says, fine, you're going to see judgment, and then you're going to repent, right? Well, it doesn't say he ever does. Let me ask you this. Has God ever, I asked this to a couple of People did this morning and, and they came with the same answers. Has God ever judged a people who repented? Or has God ever not given forgiveness or mercy to people that have repented? Yes or no? As far as I know, He never has. I can't find, think of any scripture where that 
doesn't take place. There is some type of mercy. There's forgiveness. God wants just us to repent. He's not asking us to rule the world. He's asking us to be honest. I know I'm a sinner. Repent. Ask Him, beg Him for mercy. Has God withheld mercy to a repentant? We read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, if God preventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of truth. So here's the reality. And then in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Here's the, who's the author of repentance? Who is? God is. God is the one that freely gives repentance. So there's no way God's going to, oh, I'm going to give you, but then I'm going to take it away. I'm not going to do anything about it. God will forgive. God will give you mercy. Jonah seems to not understand this truth. And frankly, neither does Israel. For neither Jonah nor eventually Israel repent for the waywardness from God, as far as we know. It reminds me of Matthew and Luke where Jesus states, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But here, you guys are all these goody-two-shoes, and you think you're all that, and you're not, and you won't repent. There's not a person in here who does not need and rely on repentance to an almighty God. Not one. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you understand what Jesus just said to a city in Israel. How many would ever put Sodom and Gomorrah as a wonderful, beautiful picture of God's grace and love? Sodom and Gomorrah, as you know, is a den of thieves. It was horrendous. It's always looked at as wicked, horrible, nasty. They're going to go. They, they experienced hell on earth. And Jesus now is saying, unless you repent, you're no different than them. Matter of fact, it'll be worse for you. Why? You have the truth. They didn't. Oof. Pretty damning verse that we find in Matthew and in Luke. All of us will while on this earth, have a need to repent. God's mercy is waiting for our repentance. And I think that's a great thing to put up on every. God's mercy is waiting for our repentance. Amen. God's mercy is waiting for our repentance. God's mercy is waiting for Jonah's repentance. But it doesn't come as far as we know. 
And God still gives mercy and then judgment to get him to realize his need for repentance. God seems like he's telling Jonah, okay, you won't repent? I'll send in the troops. The use of the military charge term attack for the, words, for the worm's action against the plant plays on Jonah's worst fears regarding God's decision to spare Nineveh. Such clemency virtually guaranteed an enemy attack on God's own people. Listen, if you do not destroy Nineveh, they are going to come in and destroy Israel. And you promised that you wouldn't let that happen. Then let them repent. Israel was wicked. Their king was wicked. God wanted them to repent and they refused. Jonah was wicked over and over again and gave them time and time and time again. I'm ahead of myself. And he still wouldn't repent. So, Jonah is about to experience the very scenario that he wished on Nineveh. The withdrawal of mercy and the execution of strict justice. Amen. I pray that we won't do that. So what are the troops? We said this attack is a military term. What are the troops that God sends in against Jonah's lack of repentance and embracing his stubbornness? First of all, the worm. But the worm takes time to do his business. So little by little, he sees his mercy fade away. Then, the Bible says... The east wind comes. What is the east wind? The east wind, the withering of the plant, left Jonah exposed to the sun's intense heat. With the temporal claws as the sun climbed higher and higher, the author emphasizes that the day is advancing to noon and Jonah is getting hotter. At the very moment Jonah's most needed that plant, God takes it away. So in other words, he's watching his mercy go away all morning. And then when he most needs it, it's gone. His mercy is gone. God takes it away. Which places Jonah in the very situation he wished on Nineveh. You wanted me to judge these people. They repented. I showed them mercy. I'm judging you. What will you do? He refuses to repent. The heat of the sun is soon accompanied by a, and here's the term in the text, a cutting easterly wind. Now, in Minnesota, we have never had a cutting easterly wind like they have in Mosul. Like we heard last week, it gets up to 144 degrees. So that wind comes right across the desert, smashes right into Nineveh. That's the cutting east wind. The only thing we have to kind of figure that out or uh, put it into our mindset, what that might be like, is we live in Minnesota. What does the cutting west wind feel like in the middle of January? especially when you're out there in a dress. And the only thing covering your head may or may not be a towel. 
How many understand what I'm talking about? And here, it's amazing. The wind, therefore, it's sharp. It's biting or cutting, intended to wear down Jonah's stubbornness. We all know what that looks like. The wind, therefore, serves as a furthering in Minnesota because we get the cold stuff. He had the hot stuff. It's the only difference. This wind serves as a further warning to Jonah of his estrangement from God because of his rejection of divine mercy. God's purpose for sending the wind becomes clear in verse 8. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry at the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. One author says it this way, and I love the way he says it. Creation joins God in a conspiracy against Jonah. Subjecting him to the fate that he wishes on Nineveh. I mean, just think about it. The storm, the sea creature, the repentance of Nineveh, the heat, the worm, the wind, Wow, what's wrong with Jonah? Can't he see God is trying to change his heart? Amen? Can't he see that? What is wrong with you, Jonah? How many times is it going to take? How many times does Jonah need God to teach him another lesson? Here's the question. You tell me. Aren't we all guilty of this? Time and time again, God is trying to teach us. Listen, is this life a struggle for Christians? Yes or no? It seems to be. Why? Because God's teaching us lessons. And sometimes that teaching, we just have to get, get beat on the head over and over and over and over and over and over again. Amen. So let's stop talking about how many times it's going to take, Jonah, what's wrong with you? And let's look at our own life. How many times does it take us to learn a lesson from God and repent? Repent. With the wind, the militaristic language plays on Jonah's fears. And those fears are very simple. And, and this is why, so God is, tell, or God is showing them that the worm attacks the plant. The plant is gone. Now the east wind attacks Jonah. Is that possibly a foreshadowing of what Nineveh is going to do to Israel? God is using a wind, that's the last thing he uses, to teach Jonah. You must repent of this attitude. And he doesn't as far as we know. Is that a telltale sign to Jonah? I knew it. 
you are going to use Nineveh to teach Israel a lesson. Guess what God does? He uses Nineveh to teach Israel a lesson. Do we know that Israel has ever repented? No. Will the lessons get so hard that they will eventually repent? If you have a certain hermeneutic in Scripture, it absolutely does. The Bible says all Israel will be saved. Why? How? Well, first of all, they will repent. When does that happen? Does anybody know when that happens? As far as we know, what we believe is that's right during the tribulation. There's 144,000 that are saved. Amen. They repent and turn to Christ. The Antichrist hates them and goes after them and tries to totally annihilate them. But God saves them in the cleft of the rock. God saves them by devouring the river they send after them. And when Jesus comes, all those believing Israel are what's left. Amen. What a joy. So they will repent. But they wouldn't have had to go through Nineveh. They wouldn't have had to go through Assyria. They wouldn't have had to go through the Muslims. They wouldn't have had to go through the Hitlers. They wouldn't have to go through the Hamas. They would, and you can name that name. Do you see what I'm talking about? All God wants His people to do is to repent. That's the same thing with every believer. It's the same thing. All He wants you to do is repent, turn, and obey. And here's the deal. And when you obey, enjoy His mercy. That that picture is over and over and over and over and over again. At least six to eight times in Jonah. This is getting really bad though. He is so bullheaded and stubborn Jonah is languishing under God's display of pure justice and repeats his wish to die. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. There is something different about him wanting to die in this text than what he said previously to God. Literally, this text literally says he asks himself to die. Jonah is directing his petition to himself, not to God like he did before. Kill me, God. It was before. Now it is, I'm going to take my own life. Help me to be able to do that. The author's word choice implies that Jonah has moved from talking to God to talking to himself. What does it take 
for a child of God to want to end his own life. Well, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I understand that in Catholic theology, if you take your own life, you aren't, you're, you're, you're unsaved. You're not saved at all. I'm not saying that that's correct, believe me. Is suicide sin? Is suicide what is called the unpardonable sin? No, it's not. I will tell you this, within the last month, I've had two, uh, two adults, one whose children were in my youth group and one whose husband or whose wife was in my youth group. Within, the, within three weeks of each other, one was the uh, led songs for the church of 400. He was the song leader took his own life. What causes that? Well, I think we find right here what causes that. Because Jonah isn't getting his way, refuses to repent and acknowledge his wickedness, and yet he then stops talking to God and focuses on himself. Is that not true? Let me ask you, is a suicide person focusing on God or focusing on self? That's easy. It's exactly what's going on right here. He has lost sight of God. He can't stand God. He is mad at God. And he is focusing on himself. He asks himself to die. Although I do not know exactly what Jonah's reasons were, it is obvious in Jonah that he is thinking about himself and he is focused on his own country and he in no way want, wants Israel's enemies to experience God's mercy. Those are in the text. So in other words, he's focused on himself and he thinks he's God. Does he not? God, do this, do this. My death, the, the text says, <clears throat> my death is better than my life. Jonah views death as preferable to the withdrawal of divine mercy from himself. The contrast brings sharp relief to the inconsistency of Jonah's application of mercy and justice. If he wishes God to deal in strict justice with Nineveh, then he must be prepared to experience that strict justice himself. If, however, he wishes God to treat him mercifully, then he must be prepared to embrace the extension of God's mercy to others. But he doesn't. He's angry that wicked, what in his mind, horrible people are getting mercy and God takes the mercy from him. Well, how did they gain mercy? Jonah, what's the term? 
What did Nineveh do? Repented. Jonah, just look. Nineveh was probably the wicked most, it is, the, uh, in history, it was the most wicked, nasty city in the world. And yet God gave them mercy because they repented. Do you get it, Jonah? I'm giving you judgment like you asked for because they didn't repent. You're not repenting, and I'm going to judge. If you repent, I bring mercy. How many would be convinced that Jonah, the book of Jonah, is a book about repentance? I am convinced that that is the issue. I'm absolutely convinced. It's about repentance. Verses 9 through 11 are God's final challenge to Jonah. Jonah, as far as we know, doesn't repent. He doesn't repent there either because Jonah's done talking. It's over with. And Jonah, when we see him last in the text of this text, we see him angry with God and an unrepentant heart. That's what we see. But God goes and talks about compassion. God's final challenge to Jonah's anger comes in 9 through 11. And Lord willing, in two weeks, we will deal with that. Because there's not enough time to finish that. Does that make sense? So the reality is, mercy, and and I I hesitate to say this because I don't know everything. But as far as I know, mercy is always given to those who repent. Because God is the one that gives repentance. He's also the one that gives mercy. But here's Jonah just fighting God in every chance he gets. And then mad that God does what he says he's going to do. If men repent... I will give mercy. The biggest problem, I think, with Jonah, not only is envy, but he's proud. He's too proud to be humbled. He's too proud. I'm all that. He's so proud, he argues with God's decisions. And he's mad that God made those decisions. He's mad at God. Pride is such a wicked sin. It's a horrible sin. All of us, in a sense, are prideful people. And as Christians, that's the worst kind of pride. It's called Pharisaicism. How many have ever heard of that? Pharisaicism is I'm better than anybody else. No, we're not. Let's just be honest. Many of you have grown up in fundamental churches that if you sin, you become the devil. How many know what I'm talking about? 
but somehow leaders' sins get thrown under the rug. How many understand that? <clears throat> that happens all the time because the reality is there's not a person in here that isn't a sinner. Even in your Christendom. The problem is we view our sin as less of a sin than somebody else's sin. Why? Why do we do that? Because we have too high of a view of ourselves. Jonah certainly had a high view of self. All God asks, be honest. We're all, gonna, we're all sinners. We all do stupid things. But be honest. Repent. And let's go from there. Don't be the guy who refuses to repent, who refuses to be humbled enough to tell his wife, I love you. Don't be that guy. I was wrong. That's the reality. Too many Christians have the Fonzie attitude. Right? I was wrong. Jonah did. And that's the last we hear of him. Until Jesus brings him up in the Gospels. All right. Does this make sense? How many of us see ourselves in Jonah that he just keeps teaching us? It's like, why won't anything go right? Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> God's trying to get your attention. Repent. Turn from. Embrace Christ. Shun. Get rid of it. Do whatever you can to run away from it. That sin that so easily besets us. For Jonah, it was envy and pride. For us, there's probably a whole lot more. Envy and pride are probably some of them. I encourage you, read through Jonah and recognize how many opportunities he was given to repent. Here's the other thing. Although we don't know that Jonah repented or not, <clears throat> Did God still use Jonah today? <laughs> He's still being used by God. I want to be that guy that will still be used by God. I will tell you this. If you repent, God will have mercy and He will use you again like you were intended to be used to glorify and praise His name. Not to tear it down like Jonah did. Mr. Gaiman, can you close us a word of prayer? Please stand, I'll pray, and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture where we see that sin makes Jonah very stupid in his refusal to repent but then we're quick to realize that we are too often the same 
sin makes all of us stupid. I pray that we would understand repentance and be quick to repent when you reveal the sin in our lives that we might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.